Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. You know, we talk a lot about soil testing on this podcast and how important it is. Well, I wanted to get someone on the show to have a discussion about how to understand and evaluate these soil tests, because getting a soil test is one thing, but understanding how to use that information can be something else entirely. Our guest this week is Aaron Crozier. Aaron is a soil and plant health consultant. You can check him out on Instagram at GrowRu, G-R-O-W-R-U. Aaron is passionate about using soil and sap testing to improve the quality of soil and plants. Aaron teaches growers how to remineralize their soil and then work on increasing plant health. Aaron has been growing cannabis for over two decades and working in the industry almost as long. Over the last four years, Aaron has been doing soil amendment recommendation for cultivation sites all across North America. Aaron is an organic grower and gardener that transitioned to organic living soil after doing testing of different methods in his personal garden. He is currently working on becoming a certified crop advisor. And if you want help with soil testing analysis or calculating the proper nutrient levels based on your soil test, we are working with Aaron to offer his services on our website at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on products and it's under the garden equipment and testing category. Or you can go to growru.com to reach him directly. I'll have links to everything we discuss as well as the soil test analysis and some sample tests on the podcast page if you want to follow along with the soil test as we discuss it. Now on to the show. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, hey, I wanted to get started talking a little bit about you and your background so we can give listeners an idea of sort of how you got into uh, becoming a, a soil and plant health consultant and evaluating these soil tests. Well, um, I've always been interested in plants and nature, and I uh, have grown, you know, for myself um, for quite some time. And I started experimenting with, uh, different methods because basically I grew outdoors a long time ago and, uh, friends of mine knew, you know, to use particular amendments and, and get really good results. And they had shared with me some of their tips. And then years later I became, uh, sick and, uh, basically, uh, that's when, I started growing uh, cannabis indoors and uh, a friend of mine, he's like, Hey, you got to do my method and set all this up. And I really wanted to test and see what worked. So I, I set up a light and tested all the different methods like ebb and flow and DWC and soil. And um, I'd heard about uh, bioponics and it was like uh, organic, and synthetic combined with cocoa. And that, that seemed kind of interesting to me. So, uh, I tested it and it, it worked well. And then, um, there was a guy who had a local cable TV show, uh, and he did compost extracts and compost teas. And one day he was at the hydro store and I saw him there and said, Hey, I'll, you know, do you want to barter? And, teach me how to use the microscope and, and do some testing. I want to see if I'm using, you know, GH or pure blend and I combine it with uh, some of these microbial inoculants. Are the inoculants even good? And what happens 
when you combine them. So uh, he agreed to, to teach me, and, and this guy, he didn't grow cannabis. Uh, he just, he had, uh, you know, grew vegetables and would do experiments with succession, and he had bees and a compost pile. So I'd make a compost tea, I'd bring it to his house, we look at it under the microscope, and he'd say, you know, throw it away. It's garbage. And so I found a lot of the, the bag products, you know, weren't very good. And so uh, in a lot of the testing, I saw a lot of things uh, would put the microbes to sleep, and they wouldn't, it, it, they wouldn't do their job. So he's like, hey, Aaron, why, why do you test all these things? Why don't you just grow organic? And then you don't have to test you know, what the harm is being done. And then I was like, I, I haven't seen anybody get the results, you know? And he's like, just do it, you know, try it. So I switched one light to soil and uh, I grew like a bunch of different fennos from seed and to feed all those evenly would have been kind of difficult. And I did really well. The The quality was great. Um you know, the yield was good. And so I, I switched over the rest of the room to, to all soil and would do compost tea, compost extracts, basically, rather than teas. And uh, then I started seeing some problems um, where it wasn't performing as well. And uh, that's when I started getting into soil testing because a lot of what I was being taught um, from the guy from using a microscope seemed like he had blinders on in some ways that, Oh, all those things are going to do harm. They're no good. And I was like, and I asked, well, have you tested it? So in testing it, then it gave me and getting the soil test of seeing what was going wrong. And there was very, very high potassium and sodium and the calcium, uh, was very low. And then, then, it really led into what a lot of people would say was, oh, you need more cow bag. And the question was always, well, if you're growing organic, you know, you're, you're not going to use cow bag. And so I found not a lot of people knew how to fix the problems when it came to organic. It was just do, if your compost extract or earthworm casting slurry doesn't fix it, then, you know, what else are you supposed to do? And I saw, hey, you, you need more calcium and how that relates to all the other cations. And then a few years later, uh, there was a company who wanted to have testers for a uh, this biological advantage program. And I went to a, a SAP analysis seminar, and they had uh, speakers, John Kemp and Tanio, and, and they they spoke about people who had been doing testing. They've been doing soil te testing and SAP and how they learned a lot of problems. Deficiencies are really excesses. So that really opened my eyes that, uh, you know, when you're growing with hydro or conventional growing, a lot of people overfeed and there's math you can use to, to make your own nutrient plan. And the same wasn't kind of being applied to soil. People were making these really overloaded soils, and it was causing people problems. And I saw the same when I tried making a soil mix 
and the plants weren't doing well. And when people, uh, then I started figuring out why and then applying that to farms that I worked with because I was doing consulting and I had ran a uh, 12,000 square foot indoor uh, warehouse and then I started working with outdoor farms. And then uh, a few years ago and spoke at the Living Soil Symposium and then that really brought in a lot more uh, soil testing work and then was able to see across the board you know, a, a lot of the problems that were present. So what you're really known for is, is soil testing. And that's sort of how I met you was through uh, Jaya Palmer. He introduced me to you and said, you should talk to this guy. And uh, I know you've been working with Build a Soil and a few other companies in, in doing soil testing analysis. Now, can, can we talk a little bit about sort of the history of soil balancing, which is sort of where a lot of these concepts and target levels come from, and then talk, we'll, we'll get into the soil testing and the types of soil tests after that. But just a little background into maybe William Albrecht and sort of where Steve Solomon and a lot of these guys are basing their uh, beliefs on. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, I remember reading hemp diseases and pests and in there, um, you know, it talks about everything you do for, for healthy plants. And in there, he mentions, you know, Albrecht and how it causes a stir of controversy in some circles. And so basically, Albrecht was a guy who studied uh, soil and how it correlated to animal and human health. And he did that for over 30 years all around the world. And he then would do testing and also compare things like looking at transpiration ratios and the microbiology in the soil. And he found right down the center of the United States where we had the grasslands and bison was, was like the ideal soil. And so he determined some ratios from his soil testing based on uh, the total exchange capacity of soil and some base saturations. And that, um, you know, when you, when you search on Google, it'll give you some, some reviews that are kind of, uh, mixed. And what I had found was, um, in, in testing the soil, a lot of the trace minerals weren't there and that's where people were worried and, and concerned that uh, they were going to cause a lot of damage. And, um, you know, because sulfates were abused in the past and people over applying versus with this method of kind of what they call soil balancing, there's application limits for these minerals. So when we also think about how soil was built in time, it's better to build it up slowly rather than just trying to hammer it down with all these different amendments. Yeah. One of the things I want to mention for listeners is this idea of soil balancing is, is really founded on the work of, of Albrecht, which dates back to the 1930s. So this is not a new concept or new technology. Now people have changed some target levels and sort of created correlations between different minerals and trace elements that they believe 
grows better plants or healthier plants, but it all falls into this sort of uh, concept of soil balancing, the idea of getting the minerals at, at target levels. And I just want to remind people that these are our opinions that we're sharing in this podcast. They're based on our experiences and our knowledge. But again, they are opinions. There's no standard really, I would say, for these things, other than maybe what Albrecht or some of these uh, soil testing labs go off of. But uh, it, it really is it really is based on opinions of people who have, you know, agronomists or or people in the industry who have had, uh, I guess, good good reputations. I don't know. Is there anything you want to add to that? Well, the other thing is when we consider soil versus soil lift, too, a lot of this was done with soil where you're, you know, sand, silt, and clay. And so this is I trying to create the right physical home for the biology because the way calcium flocculates the soil and magnesium tightens it. And, and that's where, through Albrecht's testing, he found, you know, a lot of the problems are a lack of mineral nutrition. Plants don't have a pesticide deficiency. It's a, it's a mineral de- problem. And that's why he has a saying, you know, insects are nature's garbage collectors and diseases are the cleanup crew. So in finding and getting that balance that uh, and the minerals into the plant, uh, that's going to make a plant that's going to have higher health and, and quality and then in turn greater pest and disease resistance. So that's something that can happen in time. But it's not a uh, – it can take time to happen because microbiology can take time to get going. It's like a big wheel that has a lot of torque. It's, it's slow to get going, but once it gets rolling, it's, it's very powerful. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about these, these soil testing options in terms of the types of soil tests that are available. And I want to just remind people that soil, a soil, perfect soil test is not our ultimate goal. A perfect soil test is great, but at the end of the day, let's keep in mind that these soil tests are not they're not perfect and there is going to be variability, whether it's in the sampling or in lab, in the lab, or um, just in the abilities of these tests to really properly measure levels. Uh, The other thing I want to mention is that if we are soil testing, we want to stay with the same lab because you can't compare soil tests uh, between two different labs, even if it's the same type of test very effectively, because there's just too much variability. But um, can you, can you talk to us about some of the types of soil tests? Uh, I know a couple we're going to talk about in more detail are the, the Malik 3 or standard soil test from, from Logan Labs as well as the saturated paste test. Yes, yes. And that, that's an excellent point. It's good for people to remember that it's a tool to help you make more educated decisions. But then um, some people can get hung up if, if – the soil test isn't what they deem perfect, uh, you could have really good microbiology and still do fine. So um, the, the basically with Logan Labs, we have a standard test and a saturated paste. And the standard test uses an extraction called Malik-3, and that's a stronger acid. So it's going to show us, I try to put it in layman's terms, like it's your 
savings account of minerals. These are all what is stored in your soil and that you can eventually make available, but it's not necessarily available at these levels right now. And then the saturated paste is they take that same soil and grind it into a paste and then uh, combine it with water and then test what what's at least the minimum levels of available nutrients to your plant right now. So that would show us maybe um, we have good uh, cation balance on our standard test, which is our calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. But then when we look at our saturated paste, maybe sodium and potassium is very available and then calcium's low. And that shows us that we got to work on that availability. Or maybe we'll see the soil has a, a high pH and phosphorus and some of the trace minerals are not as available. But then when we look at the standard test, they're actually there. So rather than applying more, let's work on the microbiology and improving the pH to make them available. And that way, that type of uh, uh, testing works well with biological farming or, or, or soil food web and that we're looking at the whole thing as a system and how these minerals will also benefit a lot of microbes. It's uh, needed. Just like uh, cobalt, for example, with, with bacteria in the soil, becomes cobalamin, which is B12. And that's a cofactor which is important for calcium availability, uh, nitrogen fixation. And so there's other process in the soil that we're having all these minerals, even in just very small amounts, can help. Now, if we have a soil that is high in calcium, there's something called a fizz test that, you, that a grower can do to determine what type of soil test they're going to need. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so um, when we, we look at the soil, there's a number, uh, value called total cash and exchange capacity. And if we imagine that is like a bucket and the bigger the bucket is, the more nutrients the soil can hold. So what can happen is people can apply a lot of calcium carbonate, you know, oyster shell flour, ag lime, or maybe even dolomite, and their soil, let's say, only has a PSC of 15, so it can hold like 4,000 pounds an acre of calcium, and sometimes people are applying, you know, 10, 12,000 pounds an acre of calcium. So in essence, we have 8,000 pounds of free calcium in the soil. So if you take a, a sample of that soil and you mix it with vinegar, it will fizz because it's showing there's all the calcium carbonate is reacting. And what can happen is that can really elevate your pH and it can throw off the test. Because when you have very, very high uh, calcium, that's going to suppress the magnesium, potassium, and sodium value, maybe lower than what you actually got. But then when you look on your PACE test, it usually shows there, oh, we got a really high level of available sodium, and the calcium is just a lot of free calcium. It's, it's not really available to the plant. So we can get a test... Uh, an ammonium acetate 
that's done at a pH of 8.2. And then that gives us an idea of how much available calcium there is versus free calcium. Then I can recalculate the total exchange capacity and then give someone a recommendation to then balance that out. Oh, so just to summarize what you're sharing, essentially the Malik 3 test or standard soil test from Logan Labs, and we're just using Logan Lab because that's the lab that we both uh, earlier in our careers decided to do our testing with. Uh, there's a lot of great labs out there, but for us, it's very easy because we're familiar with their testing protocols. But that Malik 3 test or standard soil test is excellent for determining sort of all of what is in the soil, but not what's available. That saturated paste test will then show us what's available to the plant more or less right now, but not all of what is actually in the soil. So these two tests combined really give us a full picture of sort of what's going on in that soil. And it's important if you're using a potting soil in particular to make sure you don't have excess calcium and it could be or free calcium in that soil because it'll throw off the test. So that's why that AA test is recommended if you do a fizz test, which I can put a link to an example of how to go about doing that. It's really easy with the vinegar and that allows you to just see what type of soil test to request from Logan Labs. Does that sort of cover it? Yes. And usually if your soil's pH is above 7.2 or so, that's when that's recommended. So, um, because you're going to get an elevated uh, pH because you have a large excess of calcium carbonate. All, all cations can raise the pH, but a lot of times it's people overdoing uh, calcium carbonate. And then if they have a high levels of calcium carbonate or bicarbonate in their water, it can grab available calcium and form more calcium bicarbonate which isn't available to the plants and further elevating the pH. So that's why it's important to get a water test as well, at least one time to see what, that, that there's nothing that uh, has high levels in your water that then could build up in your soil, causing you issues. Yeah, that's a really good point, uh, mentioning, mentioning the water test. And I wanted to give sort of an anecdote story here for listeners, uh, something that happened recently in my life where I was contacted by a farmer and asked if I could help consult on setting up. He's a, a tomato farmer that was growing hydroponically and was transitioning over to soil. So the first thing I requested from him was a soil test and a water test. And for that soil test, he's like, well, I've already purchased soil from another company and which is great. And I just said, can you get a soil test of that? So we, we know where we're starting and see how that soil looks so we can, we can move on from there. And I got the, the soil test back and frankly, it wasn't where the target levels weren't anywhere near where I, I thought they should be. And, um, from talking to that company, we weren't able to really get a good determination if this test was an anomaly or if that was, uh, just the way all the soil was from this company. So basically what it ended up coming down to was uh, neither myself nor the farmer had enough confidence in using that soil. And so now he's sitting on the soil that we're, we're going to slowly, you know, try and balance over time. But essentially the point being is no matter where you're getting your soil, if you're purchasing soil, you should get a soil test. And if people aren't willing to give you that soil test, um, that's a problem. You, you should, uh, you should probably look to another company. And then 
in addition to that, if you're going right into the ground, you still need that soil test. So this is such an important tool. If you're growing commercially and you're committing to putting in a high value crop, I mean, this, this podcast is typically uh, listened to by cannabis growers, then you really do need to you know, spend the $55 on a soil test. It's well worth it. So that's my, that's my soapbox. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Aaron, if there's anything you want to add. Yeah. I think for, there's no better bang for your buck when you look at what you could spend on uh, nutrients or other products uh, for, for, you know, 60 bucks for the saturated paste in the standard. And that's going to be a complete plus extra. So it's also going to include cobalt, molybdenum, selenium, silicon, and EC, um, which are also, you know, could be a limiting factor. A, a lot of the micronutrients are very important for regulating the macronutrients. So it's, uh, you could have everything else really in check, a good environment, uh, all your major minerals, but then lacking silicate. And then you're, you're, that's needed to kick off the whole sequence of silicon, boron, and calcium to then carry all the minerals into the plant. So, um, you know, and then you're not going to apply more of something else when that's all you need it. So you're suggesting that they may actually save money by getting the soil test so that we're not over-applying or under-applying any, any micro or macronutrients. Yes. I often see people who think they have uh, this expectation that the plants are going to remove all these minerals and they blindly keep reamending the soil and they don't need to apply that. I had a, a customer that's a husband and wife and the husband runs some fields and the, the wife runs some fields. And so the husband got a soil amendment recommendation and I told him, you know, some some kelp and some nitrogen meal and then the trace minerals needed and he amended it and his wife couldn't believe that that's all he needed. And she spent a lot of money buying all these, um, you know, products marketed to growers from the hydro store. And then the husband did as good or better. And then the next year she came and, and hired me to do her plots. And then when I told her, hey, this is all you need, and you have an abundance of nitrogen. You know, did you have mites or aphids or PM? And she's like, yeah, how did you know? And I was like, because you're putting on too much. You know, less is more. And when you see what's in the soil, it's, it's really going to make a difference. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to try it, because if I don't, I'm never going to see what happens. And then followed up with them just, you know, uh, recently and, and they were, she was super excited. They're both doing really well. Cause also the, as you do this, you know, you're really building the soil, especially when it's a field, you can go and take and turn the whole acre into a, you know, all usable soil and, and do amazing, you know, and a, a lot of people that can be a blocker to to do an acre of potting soil would be, you know, way out of their budget. People can request a soil test, but then they don't really know what to do with that information. So they, 
they get a soil test done on a soil or they get a soil test from another company that may be providing them with soil or a nutrient or whatever. But what do you do with that information? It's very confusing to look at all these numbers and, and understand them, which is uh, one of the big challenges. So I'd really like to, with you, just starting with a uh, regular soil report, if we could work our way down that soil report. And you know what? I'll I'll put a copy of uh, a sample soil report on the podcast page so people can kind of go and check that out too. But let's just, um, do you happen to have a Logan Labs one in front of you that you could kind of go off of? Or do you want me to just kind of list the things as we're working our way down the, down the report? I, yeah, I have a Logan Labs report and then I could share an example, you know, of a soil and saturated paste and then how I do a soil amendment recommendation. So what I try to do is I go through each item on this test and explain, you know, are, how are you doing? Are you high, low, very high, and where you should be? And then, um, then I tell you, here's how much to apply for, per yard, or if you have a particular size uh, field or bed, I'll, I'll make the recommendation best on that. And then I give instructions also how to apply it. And then I give some tips, too, of based on where you're at, you know, here's some suggestions to help you improve things until the soil gets more balanced. Like maybe you've got uh, 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 very high potassium and sodium, and that's inhibiting your manganese uptake via the soil. So I'll just kind of go through a, a, a test and then some of the values and um, that are on here. How's that sound? That sounds great. Maybe a few sentences about each one because there's quite a few. This could turn into a really long podcast, but let's, yeah, let's work our way down. I think that's important. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you take it away. Great. So the, the test is going to come out. You're going to have a, um, a sample location and a sample ID, a lab number, that's more just for identifying your sample if you send in uh, various samples. And um, I want to just really quick talk about the soil sample before I go into that too because we didn't cover that. Um, it's good to take a, a composite sample of maybe 15 or different places in your soil, and it's good to use wear gloves so that way you don't transfer sodium from your hands. And if you're using uh, a shovel or a spade or something, you don't want it to be rusty because that could transfer iron over to your sample. And basically, I want to take 15 or more core samples, combine all those, mix them together, and then I'm sending two cups of soil into Logan Labs. And on that bag, I will write, you know, my name, email, and then an ID to, so that way I know it was a bed one, bed two, and that's going to correlate with, with your farm or, or garden. And if you have a problem area, you could take a separate sample for that. Otherwise, um, that's how you're going to get a composite sample. And then back to our test, uh, the, after we have our ID and lab number, it's going to say total exchange capacity. And that's going to be a number to give us uh, how much nutrients the soil can hold. So this particular uh, soil is uh, 15 
total exchange capacity. Uh, if it's below 10, uh, it doesn't hold a lot of nutrients, and so sometimes you may have to fertilize more often. Uh, some crops may need another top dress mid before you go into flower if you're vegging a longer time when the TEC is below 10. And then all my recommendations are going to be for a lower amount of minerals. Next is the pH of the soil sample. Uh, ideally, want that around 6 to 6.5 pH. Uh, as the pH climbs above 7, we lose exchangeable hydrogen, and it's harder for the plant to get the minerals out of the soil. The next value we have is organic matter in a percentage, and organic matter is going to be very important for our soil food web and the microbiology. Uh, for each percentage of organic matter, it's going to release nitrogen, and we ideally want that uh, above 10%. And a lot of the soilless mixes, uh, peat moss comes back right fresh out of the bag as 90% organic matter. So Logan tends to test a little higher than other labs on organic matter, I find. One thing I wanted to add about organic matter too is the higher organic matter is, if you have good microbial activity, the less, you know, quote unquote soil you're going to have uh, at the end of your cycle. It's just like in a raised bed in your garden, you know, every year it goes down a little bit. That's that process of all your organic matter breaking down slowly into humus. And so it's not a, it's not a bad thing, but that higher that number, keep that in mind because you may have to replace more soil the following season to get, to get that back up. Yes. Yes. It's, especially we'll see that more so on native soils where they really need the organic matter uh, built up. Um, of course, after time, everything's became humified, then it can be the same case with soilless mixes. Uh, but they tend to, to get heavier in time when, when it's really, you're doing things right. Uh, the, the next value we're going to have on the test is anions, and we're going to have sulfur, and that ideally we want at least uh, 35 ppm of sulfur, and we could go as high as equal to phosphorus on the sulfur. Um, phosphorus is then next, and it showed as P205 usually, and we multiply times 0.44 to get actual phosphorus. One thing I wanted to add about sulfur is that's where a lot of our odors and flavors, our terpenes come from. So it's important that we have that, that sulfur in there so that we can get that expression in our final flower. If we're growing, if we're growing cannabis, for example. Yes. It's also important for uh, nitrogen oxidation, you know, processing nitrogen in the plant um, so that way there, it doesn't have free ions and, um, cause that's what can be a calling card for pests, uh, when the plant is not processing the proteins it, it processing the nitrogen into complete proteins when there's, uh, sulfur's lacking, uh, that doesn't happen. And also elemental sulfur can attract sulfur reducing bacteria which combined with your soil getting some runoff can help to lower the pH. Because if you have excess cations like calcium, magnesium, potassium, or sodium, 
the sulfur will combine with calcium, make calcium sulfate, and then help to leach excesses. And calcium sulfate is gypsum, just for people that may not be familiar with that term. And it's one of the easiest ways to raise your sulfur levels and also maintain your pH while getting calcium in there too. Yes, and you can also get it in a solution grade. So that way, if you're um, not tilling your soil, it's easier to irrigate in and immediately raise the available calcium. Wonderful. Um, and so that's what's next on the test is the exchangeable cations. And that it shows calcium, and it will show us our desired value and then the value found. And um, the same goes, we'll have magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And then after those are listed, it's going to show us the base saturation of calcium and uh, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and exchangeable hydrogen. So we're shooting for at least 68% cal on the calcium, uh, 10 to 12 on the magnesium, 3 to 5 potassium, and ideally we want 1.5 percent or less sodium and then exchangeable hydrogen uh, ideally we want a pH in the range of 6 to 6.5 and for each point of pH drop below below 7 we gain 1.5 percent exchangeable hydrogen all the way down to a pH of 6. So uh, pH of 7, you have zero exchangeable hydrogen, 6.9, it's 1.5%, 6.8, it's 3%, and so on and so on. And that's where, when you look at a lot of those charts that show pH, uh, it's really showing you how much hydrogen you have, and that's how the plant has an easier time getting the minerals out of the soil. The higher you push it above uh, 7, sometimes that can cause problems with availability of phosphorus and trace minerals. Can, can I add a couple of notes here? So for new, new people looking at these tests, uh, keep in mind that the part where it says exchangeable cations there, where they have a desired value and value found that desired value is based off of your cation exchange capacity or your total exchange capacity. So the idea being is that exchange capacity is sort of your sponge. As I like to describe it, you use savings account and it's like, how are we filling that sponge or that savings? account? What are we filling it with? So I, I think it's easier to just skip down to sort of the base saturation percentage and say, okay, well, my sponge is 60% calcium, 20% magnesium or whatever those levels come back as reflected on the test. Now, I know you and I have talked about this. I like to run potassium slightly higher because I see multiple tests coming. Um, the potassium cannabis using potassium faster than some of than say calcium or necessarily magnesium, um, which I'm totally open to your feedback on. But um, again, these are target levels that are sort of established by, uh, by consultants or by agronomists. And there really isn't any, uh, anything I've seen officially for cannabis out there. So they're all sort of based on what target levels we all think, um, at based on our own experiences are optimal for cannabis. Yes. And, and it's to give you a range, you know, as well. And of course there's going to be different situations, you know, maybe somebody's a high intensity farming in a controlled environment 
where they have CO2 and uh, more things enhanced versus somebody who's doing a full-term outdoor or a different situation. So I find that um, the potassium, you know, cannabis, it, it does um, like a lot of potassium, but if it's in excess, it will inhibit the uptake of calcium. So what's really important I found was how much was potassium was in the soil to start and then going from there. Because a lot of times um, people mix compost, peat, and all their uh, amendments, and then they add all the amendments and test it, and they never saw where they were to start. So that's kind of skewed. And so then when I look at the PACE test, it'll usually be potassium is very high. And when I use a sap meter, I can test how much calcium potassium is getting into the plant. And I've seen on, because I grew in the soil that had, you know, 15% potassium, and I want to see how long it would take to correct itself. You know, how long does it take to leach out and fix that? And I would always see three to 6,000 ppm of potassium, and calcium would never be above 100 to 200. So after growing in that, and it got down to 5% potassium, uh, I was seeing 3,000-plus ppm of calcium in the plant, and my bricks would be 18 to 20-plus. Before that, it would, all, it would be 7 to maybe 10. So it made a, a big difference in that instance because the soil was built with a very, very high level of potassium and sodium a really large amount of compost was added and it took a lot of time to really balance out. And it wasn't until I saw the PACE test that it really showed how out of balance it was. Because when I look at the standard test, all the numbers look great. And I found a lot of people had a, a, a misrepresentation. Oh, my standard test looks fine. Why are my plants yellowing? And, seen these problems well the sodium's much more available and the potassium's much available and it's like a teeter totter that's skewed it towards potassium in we wanted more calcium to be 60 percent not potassium and so a little spoon feeding a little bit of that gypsum uh, really helps to balance that out and that's why a lot of people say oh you need calmac because <laughs> it's doing the same kind of thing um, so it's really interesting to see that and have people tell me, oh, this is what's happening, and then uh, be able to, to correct that. Because I've seen it many, many times now where people said, hey, my plants, are, they're yellowing, they're, you know, the tips are burned, um, you know, and they have a high pH, a lot of carbonate, a lot of potassium and sodium. And uh, high, really high chloride, and that's also not a good home for the microbiology to thrive. You know, so we're going to start working on our soil food web, and we got this home that's full of chloride and sodium. They're they're just going to get dehydrated out, not do their job. So getting that balance really helped for the soil food web balance, and they complement each other. So that's where I found and shared with the guy who mentored me, hey, look, I've applied copper, I've applied these trace minerals, and I'm seeing better results than before. 
at small amounts, it's not as damaging as as thought. And um, you know, uh, in some instances, it's it, it was the limiting factor. So that gets on to our micronutrients on the test. And uh, if you get a standard test without the extras, you'll have boron, iron, manganese, copper, zinc, and aluminum. If we request extras, we'll also get cobalt, molybdenum, selenium, silicon, and EC. And then ideally, we also want to see ammonium nitrogen and nitrate nitrogen because then we can really gauge whether we need to apply a nitrogen meal or not or whether there was a huge excess um, and people can make a more educated decision on what to apply. And then for those minerals like boron, um, the levels that we want to see is going to vary on your TEC. If you're below 10, 10, you want to see at least 1 ppm versus you're at a higher TEC, we want to see 2 to 3 ppm. Iron is next, and I often see iron is very high. Uh, A lot of times people uh, will, uh, the compost is high in iron, castings is high in iron, and then some of the rock dusts are. So um, iron does have issues with availability um, as well, especially when the pH is higher. Uh, Manganese is another one I often see is lacking. And we have all the conditions for manganese deficiency in a lot of the living soils that are built. We have high levels of carbonate, high levels of organic matter, uh, high if there's a free calcium that can contribute to a problem with manganese. Uh, If sodium and potassium on the base saturation is above 10%, the plant's not going to pick up manganese from the soil. And then iron and manganese are antagonistic to each other. High iron suppresses manganese and high manganese will suppress iron. So we want to see about half the manganese to the iron. Um, We can even push them pretty close, but we don't want manganese going above iron. Uh, Copper is uh, very important for disease resistance. And if you have very high nitrate nitrogen, it's going to suppress the uptake of copper. You'd like to see at least 4 ppm of copper. Um, Then zinc, that's going to be important for phosphorus and other uh, leaf size and evenness. And we want to see 8 ppm of zinc at least up to maybe 12. Uh, Aluminum. We want to see under 200 ppm of aluminum. Uh, That's usually okay on most uh, soilless mixes. It's more native soils where I see higher levels of aluminum or if somebody has overly applied azomite to their soilless mix. I've seen a guy apply a half a cup, a cubic foot, and he had uh, four or 500 ppm of aluminum. So it's... Way, way too much in there. I usually, if someone's going to use azomite, it's better to stick to 100 grams or less a yard. Um, now, I have a question about that one because I, I was under the understanding that uh, alum- that azomite was high in aluminum. But then when I went back and look at one of their tests of what they're claiming on the label, the aluminum levels were actually quite low. So 
I've sort of pulled back on my sta- my statement there. Have you seen otherwise or, or anything else to reflect that? Well, that's where I was told that concern. And then I saw a test where the, you know, customer's aluminum was very, very high. And then we followed up on the phone after his test. I said, what did you do? He goes, oh, I built a, you know, a tube mix and I didn't have any rock dust. All I had was azomite. So I applied it at a half cup per turbic foot. And so, um, you know, unless there was some other factor, like he had a compost high in aluminum or something, then I could be wrong, you know? Okay. I just wasn't um, sure if you had heard otherwise. But that's just one instance that then I played it safe. I'm like, hey, if it'd be better to have a diversity of other rock dust, because I found uh, the, unless it was a glacial rock dust, uh, a lot of the other basalt in those was was higher in iron and wasn't as, as in balance of the other trace minerals. So sticking to a smaller amount of rock dust, we still want it, but then I wanted to bring up those trace mineral levels by using, you know, sulfate trace minerals, which if you get a soil test, and you show that they're lacking, that's OMRI, a National Organic Program, approved as organic. So that's the other importance of getting a soil test. Then you're going to make a more educated decision of what you're going to apply, just what's needed, and then help minimize any uh, runoff or, you know, like excess nitrogen or phosphorus, even though it's organic, it still can do harm to the earth. So the soil testing can really help you to dial in those levels and bring up, you know, what's the lowest common denominator. You know, it may be just you're, you you got silicon or we would say, hey, you got a real high excess of something else and it's causing you a deficiency. So what you're referring to is all of these are available in a sulfate form more or less. So you can get iron sulfate or manganese sulfate or copper sulfate or zinc sulfate, for example, where they're already uh, chelated to sulfur and they are not organic, but they're allowed for use in organic production if you have a soil test that shows a deficiency. Correct. And some of them are listed OMRI organic on it, but that's where people get confused because, you know, it's something mine, but there was a man-made interaction. You know, and those, some of those like copper is 25% copper. So by applying a small amount, you know, like nine grams a cubic yard, we're going to bring those levels up versus if I was just spoon feeding something that was a lower level of copper, that works well as a band-aid, but it doesn't bring the levels enough to up enough in the soil to correct a deficiency. So that's where I tested that at first, you know, like using, um, you know, bottle products that were small percentages, 2%, 0.5% boron, and, and supplying them, and then doing another soil test and saying, hey, that didn't raise my levels. So to me, that felt a lot like hydroponics. The fertilizer salesman selling you the stuff wants you to buy more. I said, I'm going to test this and apply these trace minerals and then see what happens. 
because the guys I was working with were working with vegetable farmers with hundreds of acres, and they didn't have the budget or, or you know, uh, material to apply it accurately versus cannabis growers usually have raised beds or pots, and it's not always acres where we can really amend that soil and do each bed and test each bed. So I did that on two beds and tested and applied the trace minerals, and I was within less than 5%. So it was very on. And what I did is I took all the trace minerals, I mixed them with water, and then I applied them to the soil. That way I could apply them very evenly. Because imagine trying to spread, you know, 5.5 grams of boron across 200 gallons of soil. It'd be easy to get a little hot spot or, or to sprinkle it everywhere. It would be difficult. So by combining with water, we could mix it, spread it. It would bring those mineral levels up, and then I don't have to do that anymore. So therefore, I can grow more plants. It's going to come out there. They're going to be balanced. I compost them or bring them back in the soil. That's going to help make those minerals even more available, and I can close the loop. So even though it may seem, okay, we're bringing in these minerals to do this, we're just trying to build that up, and therefore we don't have to do it anymore. Because then all the plants, animals, humans, all is going to be getting that nutrient-dense uh, crops or food, and then everything is healthier down the line. Yeah, I do want to mention that uh, you talked about those bottled products. And th essentially, the two companies that I'm familiar with that are making uh, chelated bottled nutrient products that are approved for organics would be Albion and Biomin. And uh, we carry the Biomin line. One of the things I like about them is there's something that can be watered in throughout the grow cycle for as a way of raising yes. those levels and maybe available a little bit sooner to the plant than say something like copper sulfate, which we have to be very careful with our application with uh, because of its potential toxicity and plant response. And we're adding so little, like you mentioned. So I totally agree with you on a commercial scale or on farmland or acreage. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use these products. If you have, you know, a, a facility or a smaller garden, then I think these products may have a sort of niche there where they may have benefit. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Yes, and, and I also want to elaborate that those are good as Band-Aid fixes until you get the minerals built up and available. Yes. So you, uh, TM7 is another one you could use or uh, where we're going to spoon feed those trace minerals. Then after a run or two, we've built all those levels up where it could just be done a few times or monthly rather than uh, a weekly to help. Because, um, for example, manganese has a max application rate, and so usually it can take three or four times to really get the manganese up to half a iron in some cases. So... Um, that gives us a way to foliar entrench a small amount, and then we can help things to make sure there's plenty for the soil and the microbes in the plant, and they're, they're not going to be deficient. Because a lot of those also are not mobile, so by constantly applying that magnesium and calcium, you're going to ensure that it's always in the plant. Then, then you're going to get your soil food web, your, your soil is going to become more bioavailable, and then that won't be needed as much. 
So it can, it can really help because when you foliar spray, the roots exude more sugars, exudates, which then speeds up the microbiology. And healthy plants will make healthy soil faster. Yeah, and there are studies that show that the uh, plant is able to buffer the pH based on the exudates it's putting out into the rhizosphere. So even if your soil pH is a little off, the pH in the rhizosphere could actually be uh, closer to optimal for the plant, which I thought was really interesting. Yes, yes. I saw a University of Guelph. Or, uh, they just had a study. They were showing pH up to 7.4, wasn't showing any visual problems in the plant. So that's where else um, I feel more testing needs to be done because I hear that a lot. People, well, the plant was fine. Well, a plant can have a lot of hidden deficiencies and what looks fine, but it's really not. It could be improved from where it is. It could have greater pest and disease resistance. It could have greater, higher bricks. And so by using these other tools, it helps us to get a better idea of our baseline where we're at and how we can make improvements. And I see a lot of assumptions being made, oh, the plant's fine, it's healthy, and I've tested, it's not. And it, it seems to be the norm where instead of, hey, let's, let's not look at this with an ego at all and, and look at it, try to ask the plant and see what we can do. You know, just when you go to you know, blueberry growers or something, he's not, there's not all that ego sometimes too. And that's not always the case, but um, it, it's always interesting that people will tell me this, that, the, you know, our plants are super healthy and then I'll go there and see that they're, you know, high in nitrogen and the bricks is five. So uh, there's definitely room for improvement, you know. And it's not to put anyone down. It's just trying to say, hey, let's look at how we can improve things and become more efficient because then you need less fertilizer. As the soil becomes more balanced, it becomes less extractive. So you're not going to lose those minerals from the soil as much. And everything's going to be getting into the plant much higher. So it's really interesting, you know, when you look at a, you know, rainforest or something, the you know, it doesn't have a high EC, but everything is, is thriving because everything's being delivered by microbes, microbial metabolites. And the plant is exchanging with them. They're giving it back what it needs. And so sometimes, you know, a lot of times that um, we want to help things, but we can do too much. And by having some tools to gauge what to do, it can help make more educated decisions and better results, you know, and in turn it, it can save money too, because you're not over applying fertilizers either. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the saturated paste test here, just to keep things moving along. Was there anything else though you wanted to add about the, the standard test before we did? Uh, no, that covers everything, but uh, you want to write in your test, if you get one from Logan, in the comments, you write complete plus extras, and that's how you get the nitrogen, the ammonium nitrogen, the cobalt, molybdenum, selenium, silicon, and EC. And then that will also get you a saturated paste test. 
sort of go over to the saturated paste. It starts off with the water used. So if I send in my water and get it tested, they could also perform the saturated paste with your water. So get a more realistic idea of what's happening in your garden. Then it's going to show us the pH. It's going to show us the soluble salts, which uh, it's going to show us chloride, uh, which is important to see because if that's too high, that can inhibit other anions or inhibit the microbiology from going. Uh, bicarbonate, uh, we don't, we want 50 to 100 ppm. We don't, that would show us maybe our water uh, had excessive bicarbonate. Um, sulfur, we want to see at least 5 ppm. Uh, available phosphorus, uh, we want to see at least 0.5 ppm there. Um, we're going to see that's much lower uh, than what we see on our standard test. Um, the highest I've seen is maybe uh, 100-something ppm in compost, and in the soil I saw 54 ppm. So that's where we're looking, maybe our 30, 40 ppm or less. Um, so that way we know our mycorrhizae is doing its job and we're not going hammering it with excessive phosphorus. So it's more important pH and microbial activity to get your phosphorus more available. Um, then next, we're going to have our calcium and PPM, our magnesium, our potassium and sodium, and all those are just listed in PPM. Then below that, we're going to have our percentage of cations. And so there, that's where we want to compare to our base saturation, and we'd like to see at least 60% calcium 20% magnesium, 15% potassium, and 5% or less sodium. And if that was skewed the other way, it could tell us that we have maybe a calcium availability problem or we would see on our standard test maybe we have really high sodium and potassium. Then past that, it gets into the trace elements, uh, boron, iron, manganese, copper, zinc, and aluminum. So boron, we'd like to see at least 0.1 ppm, iron, 0.3 ppm, manganese, 0.15 ppm, copper, 0.5 ppm, zinc, 0.1 ppm. And keep in mind, this is water with your soil made into a paste. So the acids that exudates from your roots is, is probably stronger than this and can probably extract higher levels of nutrients than what we're seeing here. But at least we know what's our lowest common, you know, baseline of what is available and how does it differ from our base test. So I could see, for example, maybe uh, copper is at... Um, 3 ppm, but I got 0.5 ppm copper on my paste, uh, then we could avoid, you know, adding more because we have plenty available copper. So by using both these tests, I can make a more educated decision on, on what's available and what to work on. And then as we do another run and do another test, we can see, for example, maybe we improve that cation exchange 
balance on calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. We brought up available phosphorus. Uh, you know, we see things coming to range. And I would add too that watering is very important in this because when we're adding a lot of these, uh, you know, meals, for example, we're not putting them in an chelated form that the plant can immediately uptake. We're putting them in a form where the uh, microbiology in the soil needs to break down these nutrients into a form, an ionic form that the plant can then take up. And a lot of this is controlled by the plant itself, by the, the exudates it's putting out into the rhizosphere. But I think that's an important distinction to, to mention because when we water improperly, what we're doing is we're slowing down that process. So less nutrients are going to become available. So even if our saturated paste test may show uh, these level of nutrients available, we could still potentially see deficiencies if the environmental conditions around the plant are not optimal. Yes. And especially if you're not tracking it and the, you know, you, you're seeing your EC PPM drop and you're, you're, you're not doing anything to bring that back up or you're not, the soil food web's not improving to then bring up the available minerals there, then, um, you know, it's going to require some interaction on your part. And it's the difference being we're feeding the soil versus the plant. We're using water-insoluble yet plant-available amendments that way the microbiology can break it down and deliver it to the plant. But the, uh, yeah, watering, very, very important, you know, see a lot of under and over watering and then, um, getting, getting that right moisture level can be tricky. And especially in the cases, sometimes people have high sodium and need a little bit of push through, not so much that, uh, you know, the term flush, I think, uh, you know, when it's defined by some people as being, it is taken the wrong way. It's, we don't necessarily want to flush three times the volume of water, uh, but to get a little runoff when you do have an excess can definitely help you, you know, and that's where the soil test really helps to know whether that's needed or not. And a lot of times if we're running blue mats and we're sticking at that nice uh, moisture level, that's not happening. So uh, coming in with a wand, uh, applying a compost extract or getting a little bit of a uh, push through there helps to prevent the sodium from building up. Because same thing we had, you know, salt water, we evaporated the water, the, the salt becomes very concentrated. So... Um, a lot of the compost, then we have, uh, a lot of items from the ocean. So they all tend to be kind of high in sodium. And so does, uh, you know, manure tends to be as well, dairy manure that's been, uh, composted too. But we're seeing, you know, when the compost is really finished, then those levels tend to drop as, as and get more balanced. Yeah. Is there anything that you see in general uh, more commonly across tests? I know we were just talking about high sodium, uh, which like you mentioned, can be leached out through, uh, you know, watering a bed at higher levels. 
Are there other things that you tend to see? Uh, like I know we've talked about maybe uh, over application of calcium carbonate instead of uh, calcium sulfate. So using gypsum over uh, lime products, for example. Yeah, I see that often because also it wasn't accounted for what was in the compost. And a lot of the composts are already very high in calcium, so you don't need to apply all that much. And it can vary, you know, where you are, you know, in the country. You know, each source is different. To assume that all of it is the same is just uh, a, a really big difference. I've seen the Midwest compost that had an EC of six. I've seen compost on the East Coast. And then it, it didn't have much nutrient value. And then some of the stuff on the West Coast is really loaded up. So by testing, it, it really helped to see that. And I often see, you know, uh, there's no trace. The trace minerals are lacking, uh, excessive sodium and potassium. Um, and the pH is often very high because people keep amending with more calcium carbonate and uh, keep driving that up sometimes. So um, it's better to see where you're at, and then you've got plenty of calcium, you know, then you can stop applying that and just spoon feed a small amount is much more effective than putting large, large amounts. If a little bit is good, a little bit less more often is better. So that uh, a lot of people, that's what I see. They're just over applying things and uh, not getting, uh, you know, once they start to understand the balance more and how some of those deficiencies are in excess, caused by an excess, then that really helps to balance things out, you know. Um, rather than thinking, oh, I got a, you know, uh, a magnesium deficiency and keep applying the soil, the magnesium raises the pH 1.6 times more than the other cations, and it really takes a long time to, to correct itself. So a lot of times we already got plenty of magnesium. So applying more isn't the best case. Uh, doing a foliar spray can correct your magnesium deficiency and then bring in your sodium and potassium down because uh, usually it's it's one of those being high that's the, why there's a magnesium deficiency or someone really overdid the calcium and that can cause you a magnesium deficiency too. Occasionally it's low, but most of the time, hundreds of tests I see, it's usually high. And look at peat moss, it's 12% out the back of magnesium. So it's already got a, a, a good amount. So for someone that wants to learn more about uh, soil testing and mineral balancing, a lot of the concepts that we've talked about today, are there any books or resources that you'd like to mention? Oh, yes. Um, the, you know, Steve Solomon's book, uh, The Intelligent Gardener, is good. Um, uh, Hands-on Agronomy by Neil Kinsey is really good. He was a student of Albrecht, and he's been doing this for years and applying the field and sharing the results he's getting. 
So that was a really uh, good book, too. Um, the Ideal Soil is good, but that book ignores max application rates. So that's why uh, it gives you more information, but I prefer Solomon's book and Kinsey because they both talk about max application rates and, um, you know, how um, that's important. So uh, some some cases... Uh, you know, people ignore those uh, max rates, and I've seen it cause problems. And so I'd rather play it safe and deal with something that's shown to work, and then I don't see people have problems if they just, you know, go slow and build the soil in time rather than uh, overdoing it. And there's also uh, a book, uh, More Fluid from Soil Science. It's an older book. And it's, um, you know, it talks about just testing uh, using higher levels of calcium. And so we got to consider, well, what were they testing at that time? Were they using a Malik 3? And now that we have the AA 8.2 and learn more, uh, then I feel, hey, we could maybe push calcium a little higher, 70 to 75%. But going higher isn't always the best case because as we make that calcium available in time, it can cause more problems. Because I've seen us uh, do a series of tests, and you do a standard test and then a pace test. And so then apply more calcium and then do the standard and do the base test, pace test again and see the calcium availability improve. So I had a customer, he thought, okay, I need to apply 12,000 pounds an acre of calcium to get my pace test looking good. And so it put his soil at 85% calcium. And by the end of his plants did good, but by the end of the first run and he replanted, everything was yellowing. The pH was 7.5 and above. And then it was, it was just no potassium. He caused a lot of problems by not accounting and there was such a large amount of free calcium that it caused problems. So I found in seeing that, it was helpful to know, okay, we can spoon feed a little bit of calcium and help make it more available, but we don't necessarily have to hammer it all the way up to 85%. And so this, um, in the book, More Foods from Soil Science, he preaches that because he's testing things, and in 90% of the time, more calcium improved the situation. And, and so that, that's very crude, but we, we got to be smart about it and just not go willy-nilly on calcium and ignore everything else. Because I've seen some people then realize the importance of that and then they're, they're, they're getting to um, empathizing the calcium so much to not think about balance. Yeah, I would add within this world of mineral balancing or soil balancing, there's quite a few experts that have very different beliefs. And I think, and I may be mispronouncing his name, I've always said Tejans is one of the ones that tends to go with higher calcium. I think Arden Anderson is another one as well, if I remember correctly. But uh, what I suggest... Yeah, it's Tejans. Tejans. Arden Anderson's more in the make it available... Uh, apply the B12, the cobalt, 
and work on it like a different mode of action. The way he explains it is imagine your base calcium in your soil is like a charcoal protect, and then a little bit of liquid B12 or calcium uh, applied to that charcoal is like the lighter fluid that ignites calcium availability. And that's what Arden Anderson teaches versus Keegan's was more like guinea pigging. Okay, let's experiment and figure these things out and test higher, higher. But then I think my point was, and once I started to test and look and calculate the TC with the AA 8.2 and the Malik 3, I was seeing 70 to 75% was right the same as that 85 on a Malik 3. And so by balancing it more, we can get, because I was seeing a lot of people, they look at their pace test and they can't get that 60% available calcium. So they were trying to hammer it higher and higher to force it, uh, force down the magnesium, the potassium, and sodium. Because there's that rule of cation uh, displacement. You know, add more calcium as that bumps off, it will lower the magnesium as that bumps off, it will lower the potassium as that bumps off, it lowers the sodium as long as you've got that solution and the runoff. You know, you're, you're getting that drainage. Yeah, I would just remind listeners that they can always test these things. So the best thing to do would be to set aside, you know, one area and set up a trial, you know, use scientific method, control for a variable and, and test out what works out best for you with any of the, you know, any of the podcast guests I have on here. It's just an opportunity to experiment, but experiment in a way that has scientific control. So you can actually determine what the controlling factor is in your results. Yes. Yes. That's great. Cause it, it's going to vary a little bit for everybody and what cultivar they're growing and what type of environment they're in. But that's always going to be the best plan. And when I'm working with someone new and they're maybe trying to switch from more of a conventional style to go into more of a, you know, biological or organic system of growing, I'll have them try just a light or thing and see that that works for them and then switch it over, you know, because, everyone's different and then you could see, you know, what works for them. You know, some people like, uh, you know, are used to doing things a certain way and they're used to using a bunch of, uh, different, uh, bottled nutrients and they look at those as tools and instead can say, look, here's, here's the same tools. We're just making a stock solution or we're using these dry amendments and that's the equivalent to that. And once people understand that, then they they feel more comfortable, you know, and, and knowing what to apply and how much and then seeing the response. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to day to chat with me and uh, share some of your knowledge and experience with listeners. So um, I look forward to talking to you again soon, and I'll be sure to let everyone know where they can find more information about you and what you're up to. Great. Thanks a lot. I, I appreciate the opportunity. That was Aaron Crozier of GrowRoo.com. I posted the links and information we discussed in this podcast right on the podcast page at www 
kisorganics.com. Just click on the podcast menu on the top of the home screen. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter on our website right on the homepage and subscribe on your favorite listening platform so you can stay up to date with all the latest information and podcasts right when they come out. And if you want more help with your soil testing and analysis, be sure to check out the link on the website for our information and pricing. This is a great tool for better understanding and dialing in your soil. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Thanks for listening.